I'd like to mark the Song of Invitation. It'll be number 538, Prepare to Meet Thy God. I failed to mention to those that might be running the uh, live stream this morning that I'll probably be most of the time on the floor, and so if that means changing something so people aren't only looking at um, the top of my head, uh, feel free to hit a button now. And uh, if you want to spare them the image, then leave it where it's at, and uh, the voice may not be quite as offensive as the look. Um, if you're visiting with us again, thanks for being here. Uh, just brief word of explanation, because I know we have a number of visitors this morning. If you, if you normally attend worship services with the Churches of Christ, uh, where you attend, you might be accustomed to, if you start at 10, about 11 o'clock, everything starts wrapping up and you're going home. That's not normally the case here on a Sunday morning. Um, we are generally singing and praying together and communing together for the first 50 minutes to an hour of our time, and then the sermon is on top of that. And so um, this is not abnormal. So if you think something has gone wrong, I just wanted a clarification for you this morning. That's not the way it generally happens here. Uh, but I'm on the floor this morning for a particular reason, and I failed not, not intentionally, but failed to mention uh, this morning as we made the announcements that while we do welcome those who moved to town and we're thankful for those that are newer members here, um, transitions in life happen, and those transitions are extremely, extremely difficult. And if I'm not mistaken, this morning will be the last worship service that Randy and Sandra Jennings will be worshiping with us, members of the university congregation. And uh, been, been commuting a good ways for a good while, and uh, it's just becoming a little much. And so I think they'll be attending with the Southwest Congregation in South Austin, much closer to their home. And uh, that hurts tremendously. I told them that last week. Um, they have been encouragers of mine and, and beacons of truth and generous and loving and kind and, and uh, served as mentors and instructors. Uh, but there has not been a time that I haven't preached, that I preached from the floor. I haven't come out and Randy hasn't said, that's where you need to be every Sunday morning. Right there. Um, it's a little nerve-wracking to be away from the podium and to be out from everything and to hold your Bible and maybe one page of notes inside of it. And so I don't do it that often. Um, but, brother, we're going to miss y'all so much. Um, now, I could go right back up here since I did that on the floor, but I'm going to stay here uh, this morning. I heard a story, maybe you've heard something similar about uh, an a, Airplane tower, airport tower, was communicating with the planes that were making their way into the runway. And there was a, an understudy who was training to know how to navigate those, those waters and communicate with those planes and to make sure that no mishaps happened. And so as this, this one that was the understudy sat next to the one who was training him, a, a call came in over, over the radio and said, we're, we're seeking permission to land. And the communicator there says, land on runway five, this plane coming from the north. A few minutes later, another call came in, a plane from the south. Hey, we're, we're getting ready to land, permission to, to land. And, and the communicator says, permission to land runway five. The understudy is sitting there, and he's heard the discrepancy. You've got a plane coming from the north and a plane coming from the south, and you've granted both of them 
at, at basically the same time the, the right and the privilege to land on runway five. And so he desperately and frantically repeats this back to the communicator. The communicator picks up the communication device, the, the handheld device there, and he says, y'all be careful. <laughs> I think sometimes we see our relationship with God and his word to us sort of like that. That he created this beautiful planet, he put us on it, he gave us, he gave us all the blessings and more that we could ever imagine, but the temptations that abound in this world, it looks as if he just says, y'all be careful. I hope you make it. Try not to crash, try not to burn, try not to die, try not to, to struggle, but, but just be careful. You know, the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 10 why he spoke to them in parables. And he said this, it is for you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Realize that when we preach and teach the parables of Jesus that we are hearing the secrets of heaven. God is disclosing to us the, the private instruction about what the kingdom is like, about what Christianity is like, about what judgment is is going to be like things the rest of the world doesn't know and things the rest of the world simply doesn't want to hear. He says to us, if you'll read these and you'll study them, you'll know the things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And so we began a few weeks ago a series of studies on judgment parables. We sang about judgment all morning this morning and our minds should be attuned to the fact that every one of us will one day stand before our Maker. Our judgment parable for today is found toward the end of Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 47. Now, we're going to go there in a moment, and we're going to read that parable together. And we're going to notice five truths from that parable. Before we do both of those things, I want us to situate the parable of the dragnet in its context. I want us to appreciate what's being said um, if I were to ask you what is the great parable chapter of the New Testament, there are probably one of three answers that you might give. You might say Matthew chapter 25. The ten virgins, the talents, and the judgment scene. We noticed the, the, the virgins parable last week. You might say Luke 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Both lost sons, by the way, in that parable. The elder and the younger. Or if you didn't say one of those two, you might say Matthew chapter 13. Seems to be the beginning of those parables, and it is probably a chapter that contains more parables than any other in the New Testament. And all of those parables link together. It's not our, our time, nor can we give all of our attention to doing that this morning, but he talks to them about the parable of the sower, how that he will come into the world and he will send forth sowers and they will plant and they will produce after the seed that has been found. Then he reminds them that in that planting that they will grow up among the people and the things of the world. And sometimes the, 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 the wheat that's being produced by the good seed is indistinguishable from the, from the tares that are being produced by the bad seed. And so you have to wait to the end for the Lord to take the church out of the world because it must remain in there till then. Then he talks about how that the, the, the kingdom will begin like a mustard seed or a small amount of leaven. And it will spread and it will grow and eventually it will permeate all that's there and 
As it grows into a great tree, birds from all over will come and lodge in its nest. As he explains several of those parables along the way, he then reminds them that the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a hidden treasure in a field. Buried and forgotten, only stumbled upon by a man, and he's so excited he covers it back up. He goes, he sells everything that he has, and he buys that field so he can get the valuable treasure that's in it. The kingdom's like that. It's that valuable. Same sense, it's like a man who's searching his whole life for the greatest prized pearl that he could find. He has searched the marketplaces and he has searched the, the businesses in town and across the world. And finally, he finds, the Bible would say, that one pearl of great price. You know what he does? He does exactly what that man did when he found the hidden treasure in the field. He went and sold all that he had. He bought that one pearl. There's so many lessons that are explained to us and revealed to us, so many secrets about the kingdom in those parables. The progression, the fact that Jesus is going to come and, and build a territory, plant a vineyard, start a, 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 an agricultural business where he will, he will produce crops and that, that we must be careful about where we sow and about, about where we grow and what we get entangled in, in the world. That there would be no wow factor at the beginning of the kingdom. It would be like a little piece of leaven or a small mustard seed. We reread Acts 2 and we are enamored by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people that obey the gospel. If you back that out and look at the world as a whole, wasn't much significant on that day in human history that men knew was, being, was significant. And then the, the idea of how valuable and important and significant, all those things are, are played out. But there is one theme that runs through the entirety of those parables. One theme that, that keeps coming back over and over and over and over again, and that is that the kingdom of heaven is available and open to all men. See, the, the sower is going to sow not just on the good ground. See, we, we try to identify with the parable of the sower, but in reality, we can't. We really can't, not, not, from, not from a physical standpoint, because no one goes outside and just throws seed all around. Unless you're leaving a, a, a wedding and then you're not planting, you're celebrating. No one goes outside, just throws seed all over the ground. We, we cultivate and we find the good ground. Even if we have a, a, a large piece of land, we go to what we feel like is the most fertile. We get it the most prepared and we only put the seed there. Why? Because we are not, we're not wasteful. We don't want to just spread seed where it's not going to grow. Do you know in the parable of the sower, they even spread the seed on the road? That's what the wayside means. All the fields had, had roads that ran between them, and the sower would walk those roads, and as he sowed, seed would fall on the road. Imagine, imagine the illogical concept of trying to plant crops on Wonder World or Ranch Road 12. But you see, the, the, the picture of, of the parable of the sower is he sows everywhere. And even when he doesn't assume that it's going to last, even when he knows it's not going to spring up, even when it does spring up, he knows it's going to be choked out, it's offered there anyway with just the opportunity, just the chance that some piece of that ground will bring forth and hold and have produce. And then the idea of the, the leaven as it spreads and it permeates the entire loaf. Or maybe most noticeable in the parables that lead up to the dragnet is that idea of the mustard seed. It grows into this great tree. It grows into this, this, this great nesting place and birds from all over and all stripes come and rest in its nest, in, in, in its branches, make their nest there and they lodge. 
in that place. Now, for those of us who are Christians in this current culture and climate, we get it, I think. In fact, it's hard for us not to get that. The gospel is for all, right? Jesus died for the whole world. He calls all men to come to him. The the, the invitation is for all who labor and are heavy laden. The, The gospel is for every man. But you realize that Jesus preached in a time where people were separatist. They didn't blend They didn't mesh. They didn't match. The world was divided in all manner of two divisions. Most memorable for us as we read the Bible is Jew and Gentile, right? It was more than that. The world was divided into male and female and to a point where many times, even socially, those two did not mix. Divided between the wise and the foolish, at least from the the Greek standpoint. The Romans divided them from free men to slaves or from Roman citizens to everybody else. And really, as you looked at religion of the day, particularly the Jewish religion of the day, it was all about drawing lines of separation, about drawing lines of distinction, the clean and the unclean, the saved and the unsaved, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Division after division after division, which no doubt would have led the people of Jesus' day to ask this question. Who wants to be in that kingdom? That's not appealing to us. We've lived our whole lives to draw lines and to be separate and to be different and to show our holiness and to point out their unholiness. And now you want us all to be brought into one place? Lord, how are you going to handle that? And before the parable chapter comes to a close, Jesus reveals how God's going to handle that. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. Let's look together at our parable for just a moment beginning in verse 47 again the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea gathering fish of every kind and when it was filled they drew it up to the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers but the bad they threw away so it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and they will throw them into the furnace of fire in that great pla- that place where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and we'll add this verse to it because we'll talk about it. And he asked them, "Have you understood these things?" And they said, "Yes." Lord, we we don't believe in, in in mixing. We don't believe in mixing the Jew and the Gentile, the male and the female, the free and the and the slave, the the wise and the unwise, the righteous and the unrighteous. We're not sure your kingdom is really what we want. We're not sure your vineyard is where we want to be. What are you going to do about all the differences in the church? Here's what it's going to be like. And notice when he answers that supposed hypothetical question that's posed. He starts by reiterating what we just said. The kingdom is for everybody. It draws in from every walk of life. It includes every race. It includes both genders. It includes the wise and the unwise. It includes those who believe they're righteous and those who know they're unrighteous. It includes all of them. In fact, he does so by by painting a a very vivid picture for this time. See, the fishnet that they would have been using would not have been a net on a handle. Sometimes we might use when we have reeled a fish close to the boat only to scoop down with that net and bring it the rest of the way in. This would have been a massive net. On the top, it would have, been, it would have had floats, and on the bottom, it would have had anchors or, or weights, and they would cast that in, and as it would drop to the bottom, they would somehow drag that net through the water. 
Some suggest that they would tie it to a place on the shore and then they would launch out of the boat and they would, they, they would maneuver that boat in sort of a semicircle. It wrapped right back around to the shore and then draw it up. Sometimes they would attach one side of the net to one boat and the other side of the net to another boat and those boats would go through the water in, in, in tandem as they, as they brought it in and brought it up. Sometimes it would take as many as, as four or five men to handle these. Now, there was some strategy to it. They would go where they knew fish were. They would look for a school of fish. But it would not be a flawless or worryless problem. Sometimes they would draw in all manner of undesirable things. If you've ever fished where people would throw their trash or discard their stuff or things would wash downstream, you'll know that you could catch a lot more than fish in most bodies of water. Certainly would have been the case in the first century. So as he pictures this dragnet being cast out and just swooping through the, the water, bringing in anything and everything that would fit and didn't filter through, it would all be drawn up and brought to shore. And when it was brought to shore, there would be the division. The, the taking of that which was good and putting in containers, probably either to, to, to hold over until it was time to, to clean and cook or to hold over until it was time to go to market and sell. We would hold over that which is good and he would discard everything else that wasn't. And Jesus said, that's how it's going to be at the end of time. See, the idea that the, the, the gospel is for all doesn't mean that all men get to go to heaven. The fact that the invitation is open to all men doesn't mean that the unrighteous and the unclean will be allowed in simply because they're drawn up in the net. But it does mean that I don't have the right to suggest that someone doesn't get, belong with a shot, with a chance, with the opportunity, or the grace of God. So I think with that in mind, I want to consider very, very quickly five, five brief lessons that this parable should teach us. Number one, number one, salvation is not simply a matter of association. Salvation is not simply a matter of association. That idea, that concept, and, and, and to reassure them somewhat, God had spent generations convincing people that holiness was the way to live and letting go of sinfulness was part of the human experience in their relationship to God. He was not undoing that when it came to this parable. It wasn't the idea that while God had standards in the past and he demanded righteousness in the past, when it comes to the new day, the new creation, the, 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 the new kingdom, that all that was thrown out the window and everybody got to come in no matter how they were. It's not the point. See, because there will be a, a, a dividing Line. Now, some of that dividing takes place in the world we live in, doesn't it? Sometimes the, 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 the ground that springs forth in, in, the, in the thorns is choked out. And the rocks doesn't take root. And it's washed away and it's swept away and it burns up with the heat. And the devil comes and steals that seed on the wayside. That happens sometimes in the world we live in. But if it doesn't happen, the point is this. You don't get to be brought in and put in a container and used for the God, God's glory simply because you got caught up in the net. It's more than that. Salvation is not simply about association. We've, we've heard that, haven't we, most of our lives? That, that we're not going to be allowed into the, to the kingdom of heaven because we're married to a good person or because we're part of a, a good church family or because our children are righteous or because our parents are righteous. This is just something else that reaffirms that. There will be a division and, and that it will be sorted out and, and God will have the final say in that. So we need to keep that in mind that salvation is not simply a matter of association. Number two, it also teaches us there are some things that as Christians we simply can't judge. You ever thought about that? 
there are certain judgments, there are certain things as Christians we simply don't have the right or the authority to make that declaration on. And what happens sometimes, we read a passage like this, read a passage like Matthew 7, read a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, and we sort of pit them against one another. You know, judge not, you be not judged. There will be people in, 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 in the kingdom that are, that are wicked until the end of time, God will sort them out. And then you go to 1 Corinthians 5 and Paul says, that man who has his, his father's wife, you withdraw from him and deliver him to Satan. Well, which is it? Which is it? Do, do, we, do we practice church discipline? Do, do we seek out those who are causing division? Do we seek out those who are hurting the church and deal with that? Or do we just let it go because God will be the judge at the end of time? The answer, friends, is yes. Both of those things is true, are true. There are judgments we must make. And there, there, are, there are protections for the church we must give. There, there are sins, that, sins that, that are overt and, and open and noticeable that need to be addressed, not only because of the way they affect the church, but how they affect the person who's committing them and their walk with Christ. But there are some things that we will not know and judgments we cannot make at the end of time. And, I, and shame on us if we make it our life's mission to go around simply to judge and inspect. I think there's a warning here that there are other parts of being a Christian. There are other reasons for why we're called to Christ. There are other things to do in the world and in the kingdom just simply look with, with, with a, a suspicious eye at our brethren, whether they be a part of this congregation or another congregation. There are some judgments we just can't make. If we could make them all, the parable of the dragnet wouldn't be necessary, right? If we could make them all, we would sort it out for the Lord. But he's claimed that right in territory. We must respect that. Number three, we learn from this text that because of all of this, it is likely sometimes that we will let each other down. It's likely at times that, that we will not get things exactly right. Because all of us will have some, something in our hearts, in our minds, in our way, in, in, our, in our history of the church, in our future in the church that won't be exactly what it needs to be. Yeah, I know people, and maybe you know them as well, who've left the Lord's church because the way they were treated or what was said to them or wasn't what, what wasn't said to them or, or how they didn't feel like anyone loved them or, or they, they, they saw something in someone they didn't like. Listen, if I do that, I misunderstand one of the secrets of the kingdom the Lord revealed. See, if I want to be a part of a net that is not drawn on any bad fish, I have to go to a different kingdom. Because the Lord's net draws in those of all kinds. And some of that will not get sorted out until time is no more. I have to accept that. I have to live within that. I have to function within that. And the Lord expects me to. Fourth principle we learn from these parables is that God is, or this parable, is that God's judgment is deliberate and it's patient. There are two things that are said in that reading about what happens when they're drawn in. First of all, when the net was full, it was drawn in. That, that idea of fullness is used throughout the, the New Testament to talk about the, the right exact timing for things. For example, when God sent forth his son in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, 4, when everything was right. Well, when is, when is the net of time going to be drawn? When is that final net of fish going to be brought in and all the sorting is going to be done. Well, I don't know, but I know that Peter said the reason he hasn't happened yet is because he's long-suffering. That the long-suffering of God is not yet full. And aren't we thankful for that? 
Aren't we thankful that God's long-suffering has not ran out, that he's still waiting, that, that he's still patient? I have a feeling if you and I had, had, had been given the, the, the timing mechanism to determine when to draw in the net, we probably would have drawn it a long time ago. Not the Lord. He's patient in drawing in that net, but he's also deliberate. The Bible says that they sat down to divide them. You know, the same word is going to be used of Jesus when he sits down to teach, when he sits down to judge. It's a, it's, it's, it's a position of authority and thoroughness. He's going to look at the evidence. He's going to weigh what's out there. He's going to make a, a, an informed decision. You ever been judged by man and judged unfairly? And not necessarily because there was an evil intent, but all the facts weren't there. All, all the evidence wasn't out. And the description of the judgment of God is it's patient and it's deliberate. He's going to stop. He's going to end time. He's going to gather everyone there. He's going to sit down and make an informed, just, right decision. That's really all we could ever ask for when it comes to standing before our God in judgment. But the fifth lesson, and maybe the most important for not only today, but this entire series of lessons, is that judgment is something we must understand I'm sometimes amused and all the time amazed at the reactions of, of the disciples when Jesus asked them a question sometimes I'm not amused because it's, it's, it's sad they blatantly don't understand but on an occasion like this I find it a little bit humorous he has now revealed at least seven secrets of the kingdom in these seven parables that he's told them. And he looks and he says, do you understand this? And their answer is what? We got it. We're good. You mean you understand about the power of the seed and about the, the soils that are there and the wheat and the tares and the mustard seed and the leaven? Yeah, we got it. We're good. We understand it all. I really wonder sometimes, though, if we're not sort of the same way when it comes to what should be the elementary principles of judgment and eternity. In fact, you want to talk about two very primitive concepts in the Bible and Christianity, and that is the teaching of parables and the teaching of judgment. So there might have been someone about three weeks ago who said, great, three or four or five or how many ever sermons that are parables that we all know already about judgment, something we talk about all the time. We got that. We know it. We understand it. And yet, we found out that not all of us have been ready with our lamps trimmed. Not all of us have produced the fruit necessary to avoid the condemnation of the fig tree. And maybe not all of us this morning we put into that container that which is good. So again, we come to the conclusion of another sermon, another judgment parable, and another opportunity to make it right. Realize and understand that the point is not condemnation. The point is to draw in those that might have a future in the kingdom of God. But based on the percentages of humanity, based on the very teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, there are going to be more discarded, perhaps, than there are those kept. The only question remains this morning is, which side will you be on when the net's drawn in. 
I've said before that the patience of God has, has delayed his return. It's delayed the gathering of those fish. It's delayed that judgment scene, but it won't delay forever. Will it be another 2,000 years? Maybe so. It may not be another two minutes or two days. If we're not somewhat fearful about the uncertainty of that day, maybe we don't understand the things that Jesus said. Do you understand them? Are you right with him? Are you a Christian? If you can't answer those questions with a peace of mind, the conscience of heart, we invite you to come to Christ while we stand, while we sing.